you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. A couple questions to kick off this episode with. You ready for them? There's the first one. Here comes the second. Have you ever felt mistreated? You ever feel like family, work, relationships, life has just treated you unfairly? Yeah, me too. What do we do when we experience letdowns and setbacks and broken promises and busted relationships along the journey forward in life, my friends? Well, our guest today has endured more than anyone I've ever met. And, and here's the surprising thing, he exudes more joy for life than anyone I've ever met. His name is Dave Pelzer. It's a name you're probably familiar with. Dave endured years of unimaginable child abuse inflicted by his own mom, and yet has emerged from the depths of despair to become a beacon of hope and resilience. You know the name Dave because back in 1995, Dave shared his heroin experience in his memoir, A Child Called It. It's a book that touched the hearts of millions and millions of readers around the world, and also was an unprecedented success because it remained on the New York Times bestsellers list for an astounding six years. Six years of a story of trauma and tragedy serving to inspire and elevate readers around the world. Today, Dave has made it his life's mission to empower others to discover their inner strength, persevere through adversity, and unlock their fullest potential. Join us right now as Dave shares about the unimaginable torment he endured during those years of abuse and, here's the best part, the pivotal roles that his teachers and other leaders played in his path forward toward not only survival, but thriving. He also is going to delve into the profound and transformational journey of forgiveness, illustrating the incredible power it holds in healing the wounds of not only his past, but yours and mine. So my friends, woof, baby, let me tell you something. Buckle up and get ready for it. Because this conversation is going to be a reminder that no matter how dark your past may be, how difficult your present might feel, there is always a way to rewrite your own narrative and to emerge from the shadows into a brighter, more resilient, more joyful future starting now. 
So without further ado, let's bring him on to the show. My friends, please welcome my buddy and now yours. His name is Dave Pelzer. Dave, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. How are you today, sir? Better now that I have the honor of sharing your story and your life with our listeners and our viewers, man. So I I don't know if it's an honor, sir, but I got to say this. It's my honor. I mean, the work that you're doing now that we're kind of stepping out of COVID and now that we can go outside and watch Indiana Jones movies and so forth, I have to say, when your back's against the wall, and people forget this, when your back's against the wall and you have to do something about it, you can't just, oh my gosh, poor little me, I'm going to freeze here. You've got to do something. And the work that you have done over the last decade and so is just phenomenal. And, And again, because of COVID, I think a lot of people have realized, hey, we don't need these info commercial three easy payments of 1995 to solve my problems. You got to just step up. So I want to thank you for all the work that you have done, sir. Well, if, if we've done that work, it's because we follow the steps and the guidance and the example of guys like you. And so I, we're not going to keep throwing compliments back and forth. I think as people get to know your story, for those who don't yet know it, they're going to be overwhelmed by where you've been what you've done and uh, what you're teaching. So for the folks that don't yet know your name, they maybe have not yet checked out your books. Introduce yourself. If you were to meet a new friend at a grocery store or at a dinner party, they say, Dave Peltzer, huh? Sounds familiar. Tell me about you, Dave. How would you respond? I I don't want to sound, you know, narcissistic in a sense, but I, I think when I meet people like I've heard of you, what have you done? I'm going, okay, here's a deep breath. I was allowed to fly for the Air Force with the top secret SR-71 Blackbird program as a mid-air refueler for many years. I got involved in child abuse prevention and did a lot of in-service training for decades, six to seven presentations a day, two to 300 days a year. Uh, Wrote a few books. Uh, A Child Called It was the number one book in the world. And I'm proud of that because it was dedicated to my teachers that we'll talk about here in a second. I did a show live from Baghdad, a radio show, which was just insane. It was a little, you know, Saturday Night Live meets Robin Williams. Okay, good morning, Iraq. How are you today? All right. And then what did I do when I retired? I became a firefighter like my father before me. And a few years later, I was a fire captain in California. And we're always busy here. And I think the thrust of the story is I'm blessed. (laughs) I was 14 and I was in foster care. And I was learning how to walk and talk. And I have my beautiful foster mother on one side and this princess of a social worker on the other side. And this child psychiatrist was renting and raving. There's no chance he's going to make it. He's been abused too long. He was in the basement for eight years. He can't tie his shoes. He's socially inept, blah, blah, blah. And I remember looking side to side. And I says, if I can survive living in a basement for over eight years, if I can survive by stealing food from garbage camps, if I can form myself into a boss, so my mother, my assailant, couldn't strike me as hard as she wanted to. If I can survive this, then gosh darn it, I'm going to give it a go. Because my story, I think, is about resilience. And that's, again, I always try to explain my story, not how it's about me and affected me, but right. hopefully how I can give a gift and say, you can do this and don't quit. And you survived the cancer. It's amazing that folks, when they come up to me and they say, I fought cancer. They never say they're a victim of cancer. Mm. And they 
appreciate every day from that moment on. And that's what I have always strided to do. And, and your story is so incredible and so inspirational. And that's what we need right now as we're walking past COVID because there's so many stress points. Oakland, California is a war zone. You look at the political strife in Florida against Disneyland, Disney World. That's supposed to be the happiest place on earth, not the most <laughs> resentful protester place on earth. So it's always the little things that you have to hopefully that you can control, whether it's breathing or not stressing out over this. And then always realize too, if you're having a bad day, it's just a bad day. Tomorrow should be another chance, or there's always someone that is not doing as well as you and I are doing. And I just try to work a program every day. Uh, mm. I try to make people laugh three times a day. I wanna do three good deeds a day. And the one thing that I've been humbled is I never, ever forget where I came from. Well, I'm going to start there because <laughs> I think what makes what you've done since then all the more remarkable knowing where you were originally. So you mentioned that social worker and you mentioned the psychologist and you mentioned their uh, diagnosis that your future was over because of where you were as a 14-year-old kid and the abuse you'd endured. So we're just back up a little bit. So many of the guests we have on, whether they're astronauts or they're authors or they're political leaders or whatever it may be, they celebrate the role their parents played in their success. And if you ever had me on your show, I would celebrate the role my mom and dad played in my overcoming adversity. It was because of them that I became who I, I am. You have the exact opposite story. You were victimized by the people who should have been taking care of you. You were told you were worthless by the ones who should have loved you most. So I, I want you to take us back to your childhood and talk about your mother first. It's weird because I'm a psychological voyeur. I study people of greatness and, 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 and I study people that are just the complete opposite of kind. And my mother was raised in an era in Salt Lake City, Utah. And, and you have to understand, if you're a young person, that back in that day, women didn't have rights in the church. And she fought to be independent. She was psychologically abused by her mother. So what is the old saying that hurt people hurt people? I really believe my mother tried to break free. They lived in the Depression before they went to war. So my father was involved, of course, serving in the Navy in World War II. Mary's a nice lady from across the way. And sometimes I think things can be overwhelming. My mom had three children in less than four years. And then you couple the alcohol involved, and then you couple her past. She was raised that you keep your mouth shut, put it in a box, get married, have a few kids, and just forget all about this. And you can't do that. And through whatever situation, it's called target child selection. She just happened to pick on me rather than my brother before me or my brother after me. And the first memories I have is always being afraid. Mm. All of us were all terrified. My mother would act different, which is normal. Uh, when my father was a firefighter in San Francisco, so he would work a 24-hour shift. But the moment he was home, mom got all dolled up and would do all the things. And she had a certain role she played. But then when she was gone or if my father was away at work, my mother might be at the three o'clock in the afternoon, still in her bathrobe, being berated nonstop by my grandmother, being controlled over the phone. So she would try to escape through her booze. So you can kind of see the setups in this. And it got to the point that I was isolated from the family. I had to do all these chores. I became the family slave. 
my brothers weren't allowed to have any contact with me whatsoever. And that's why I was banished to the basement. Uh, one time at age four, by accident, my mother pulled my arm out of the socket because she was beating me up and she was drunk and she fell backwards, grabbed my arm and yanked it out. Yet, about maybe 18 hours later, my father comes home and now it's very dramatic. Oh, the boy, I can hear him screaming and falling out of the bed. And I ran and I tried to catch him. Oh, he fell, he fell. Hmm, okay. Yet my father is a firefighter, bought it. The doctor who had to put my arm back in its hmm. socket. Uh, that's why one of my arms is a little bit longer than the other. It's like the story doesn't jive. But back then, you know, parental rights being what it was. It got to the point where by accident, one time I was stabbed in the chest. And I have to tell you, as a child, I thought, oh, my God, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. Because now I'm nine and you can't hide the secret. Right. To the hospital. My mother was a nurse before she married dad. Because when I was fantasizing as she was trying to bandage me up, I, it wasn't food that I wanted. I just wanted clean sheets because I wasn't allowed to bathe. And by that time, I was eating out of garbage cans at best. And yet she tried to hide the secret as best she could. My father, what has the boy done now, for goodness sakes? Well, like one time my mother had me swallow ammonia in front of my father. I swallowed ammonia twice in 24 hours. And that's why my voice to this day is a little scratchy. It's kind of Clint Eastwood meets a Darth Vader, for goodness sakes. I remember rubbing up against my father, like, help me, help me. And she shoved the uh, ammonia down my throat. And what it does, it closes off your trachea very quickly. So there's no oxygen and, and you eventually pass out. You can die. And I just remember pounding my little fist on the floor of the kitchen, right by my father's boots. And I swear to you, he says, Rerva, what has the boy done now? He's always stealing food. Always. Well, Rerva. Maybe if you fed the boy some more food, he wouldn't steal so much. So he became the passive observer. And it's just, it just built and built and built. And you want to talk about a blessing. My parents separated in, in, in January of 1973. The first weekend of March, my mother uh, was going to ship off her children to my uncle's house for the weekend. And I truly thought that was the weekend she was going to dispose of me. She was going to kill me. And through luck, God, whatever you want to call it, my teachers intervened, called the authorities. They took one look at me and said, oh, my God, yes. And I was rescued in place in, in the arms of foster care. Usually it is the, the first four years is the maternal years, the bonding years, the trust years, the first eight years is where am I at in this world? How do I fit in this world? What do I want to be? I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a teacher. I want to do something fantastic. It was my foster parents. If there's any success to me, you look at my social workers, my teachers, my foster parents. Before we take a look at your teachers and social workers and foster parents, I have to look a little bit more at your mom and some of the things she did. You're glazing over eight years of radical abuse yes when the basement door shuts again and you're physically in pain and you're hungry and you're in darkness and you're cold and you're by yourself what did you turn to well truthfully i kept my mind busy i have one of those beautiful minds and it works for you and against you one i would fantasize and that's a great question no one's ever asked that sir i would fantasize that i was worthy i was fantasized mm -hmm. that this was a dream that my mommy would wake up one day 
my beautiful princess mommy would wake up and she would, oh my God, what am I doing? Oh, I love you so much. I, I would do anything I could to chase my mommy's approval, but my mommy faded away and she went from calling me David to the boy to it. And that's very serious because that's a non-human connection. So it, it gives them a layer so they can protect themselves from psychological damage. So I would fantasize about being a good boy, a beloved boy. And then I flipped a switch. My mother had burnt my arm at age eight on the stove for several seconds. And I had to somehow come up with a plan to have her hit me rather than burn me. And then when my brother came home from a Boy Scout meeting, she threw me down the stairs. I got dressed and I purged. I just psychologically and physically cried. And I had to realize at that moment, you can't fantasize about this. You've got to do something for yourself, David. And I just would use my time in the basement. How can I steal food? How can I do this? How can I survive? I had a million ideas to run away. However, I just didn't have the courage. I had nowhere to go in a sense. But I used a lot of my time doing math problems or fantasizing. I'm a cabin boy on a ship or going to Treasure Island. So you, you went through this abuse for eight years. Mm -hmm. And you're showing up at school dirty and you're malnourished. Yeah. You're clearly being physically harmed. What took so long? When a child called it, made the, the, the best seller list. And back in the day, there were faxes and, and we had snail mail. I swear to you, we would get orange bags of mail. They're like 10 pounds each. And, and we had the hate mail file. And 50% was against my mom for obvious reasons. But then the other 50% is like, why didn't the teachers do this? Or why didn't the nurse do that? The problem was they all knew since kindergarten what was going on. My mom was part of the PTA and there was no one, there was no penal code to protect children or those trying to protect children back in that day. If you look at the first child abuse case, it was filed by a veterinarian. He says, okay, if we're harming animals, the people can be fined or even go to jail. Well, mammals... Our animals were mammals, okay? So it took a long time. And, and at the same time, my mother was always saying, well, if you do this, I'm going to sue the school district. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it was just so overwhelming. By coincidence, I had the honor of speaking to one of my librarians just last week. And yet I'm so indebted to these people. I mean, think about it. I was going to spend that weekend alone with my mom and she might have just flipped out. And it wasn't the diabolical new things. It was like, okay, she would choke me for 20 seconds, choke me for 25 seconds, choke me for 32 seconds. It would be something that she normally did, but she might've taken it past that limit. And when my parents separated psychologically and spiritually, I had given up. Actually, I didn't pray to die, but I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't being fed. And so it was the right, I call it tumblers, where things happen at the right time at the right place. I always tell people if, if there is an event within 24 hours that people say the same thing or do the same thing on your behalf, I really believe that is God knocking on your door. If three or four things happen in a period of a week, that is God screaming for you to pay the hell attention. And again, I have been so blessed at the right time, at the right place and parts of my life that, uh, that I'm just so damn lucky. Mm. Really am because I could have easily ended up in prison or that system. And, and that's the thing too. And I want to discuss this. My mother was critically injured. I don't think anything could have helped her. Even in this day, I would have been taken away from her 
and in kindergarten, my brothers would have been taken away, but she was just so far gone. And particularly now that we're living in post-COVID, we're seeing shootings every day. The violence has escalated and mental services are so desperately needed. And we need people with common sense to slow this down and say, take a breather, man. Everything's going to be all right. And in, in my case, I could have turned to that dark side yeah. easily, but I've just try to be as good as I can, as best as I can, particularly at my age, because a lot of people, they're stressing out, and I don't have the time and energy to give into that. And mm -hmm. maybe if my mother taught me anything, she taught me to want it more. I have mm -hmm. no problem of crawling on glass. When I was in foster care, I heard the N-word every day. No, 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 no. You're stupid. You have no coordination. Foster kids, high school dropouts don't join the Air Force. Well, I did. It took me six months. And I got the worst job in the world. I was a swamp cook in Florida, spit from three in the morning to nine at night, five days a week. And then I, I got a desk job so I can do uh, algebra and I did calculus. And, and, and then I eventually got to fly the most amazing weapon systems in, in the history of the universe. And then to go from that to other things in my life. So it's always the little steps and it all starts within you. And there's so many directions we could take the conversation. Talk about when you finally felt worthy. You know what? I, I knew on the inside, I knew on the inside I was very strong, especially when I was in foster care and particularly that age, that junior high, pre-adolescent, adolescent age, and you see things and hear things. And I'm going, you guys are full of crap. And especially in high school in junior high, I worked over 40 hours a week because I didn't want to be homeless like my father was. So in high school, I've worked 60 to 80 hours a week, just trying to save money because once you're 18, hasta la vista. And I would hear stories about the girls and the drinking and the driving and stuff like that. I, I said, you're all fools. You're all idiots. I'm out there working. And I just, I couldn't wait to get out of high school so I can work and just not be part of that social facade in a sense. So I felt worthy on the inside. And as I call this, the Clark Kent effect. Clark Kent is a geek. He's stumbling around. He's socially inept. And yet he knows deep on the inside where no one can see that he's from another planet, truth, justice, the American way, faster than a speeding bullet. And I felt that when I was eight years old. When I was eight years old, when my mother burnt my arm on the gas stove, I flipped a switch. I cried. I let it out. I've got blisters from the palm of my hand all the way to my bicep. And I said, Dave, you just did something that was incredible. You tricked her. So now you have to start thinking. And the one thing that flipped the switch for me is I kind of raised my hand. It hurt so much because of the blisters. And I say, basically said, as God is my witness, I'm never going to quit. As God is my witness, I'm going to give everything my best. And if you look at my, per se, successes, if, if they can be labeled that, I'm not the best at anything. That's a fact. But. I give everything my absolute best. And that's the difference. When I write, it takes me about eight hours for one paragraph. I study as much as I can before I do any presentation. I'm praying like crazy, like, Jeebus, please don't have me screw up. Not in front of these people. Not today. Thank you very much. I mean, you're always kind of pushing yourself. And, and I'm so proud of that. I'll say this nicely. I went from like the worst case of child abuse in California to the volunteer of the year of that state. Yeah, awesome. I have the same accolade 
of my heroes, Orson Welles and Chuck Yeager, Walt Disney, Elvis Presley. Uh, uh, oh my God, it's called the 10 Outstanding Young American Award. When I was in foster care, my first movie I saw was James Bond, Roger Moore. And Roger Moore was one of the judges for the award. I have the outstanding young person of the world. I go to Washington. My son was a teenager. Like, what, what are you doing now, dad? Let's go to Washington, D.C. and meet some people, all right? And he got to see me receive the National Jefferson Award. It's the Pulitzer Prize of Public Service. Or when he was young, I got to run with the Centennial Torch. I stopped. Come here. And we got to run together for a few feet. How does a fellow who... <laughs> is on the very bottom rung of the ladder being kicked farther down by those closest to him end up on the very top of the ladder thanking those around him for their work. I, I don't know. One, there's a lot of luck. You got to be truthful. There's luck, there's God. And then that's why I would study people like Oprah Winfrey or an Arnold Schwarzenegger or Harry Truman, for goodness sakes. Oh my goodness. Or Walt Disney. It was a brother. Walt came up with the ideas. Roy, the brother, did everything. The truth of the matter is, I don't know. It's like I run differently. I, I work, and even as a volunteer firefighter, I would be seven days a week in uniform, ready to go. I trained uh, as a, I was a firefighter for three years, and then I, I, I took the test to do what I had to do to become a fire captain. And normally it takes like five to eight years. I did it in three. I'm slow in a lot of things. I just, again, my best is different than other people's best. And that's why I try to use whatever my story is to inspire and encourage. Because again, life is not three easy payments to 1995. Every day, our kids come home from school in this era is a blessing. Every day, like I'm so excited. I'm going to see Indiana Jones. I love being a little kid on the inside. Every day, I'm excited. Every day. When did that first erupt? Because I, I know near the end of the journey with your mother, there were moments of profound despair where the light faded entirely. Yes. So and and, that, and, and I, once my parents separated, my father wasn't really there for me because his mantra was, one of these days I'm going to have a talk with her. One of these days I'm going to do something about it. And when you're a kid, you're thinking, great, great, make this happen. Do it now. And it didn't happen when we separated. So I lost everything. But I think my excitability per se was when I realized I was in foster care, we went to court and the judge said, you were awarded the court. And he's staring at my mom and he didn't really say a lot or I don't remember what happened, but I just remember being with my social worker and she hugged me and says, you're one of us now, you're in our care and we're gonna take care of you. And then little things, when I went to my first permanent foster home, I got to ride a bicycle. Mm. I, I just remember going up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down for hours. And it was well, foster mothers yelling, come in, come in. I'm going, no, I'm not coming in. Or I think part of it was maybe my first night in foster care, I had clean sheets. Mm. There was a movie, and this is a great movie called Castaway. And there's so many lines in that movie that, you know, in the course of a life, one never knows what events may transpire. Keep the faith. You never know what the tide's going to bring in the next day. The best line, and I've said this for dozens of years, is there's a Tom Hanks is back and there's a big party and he's looking at all the food that's just totally wasted. And is there anything you want? Anything you want? He says, no, I'm fine. I have ice. You see, we always think, and maybe we're raised that way, that once you get out of high school, once you get out of college, once you get the white picket fence home, once you get married, once you have the kids, once you get a million dollars, that, that then you can be happy. BS. Here's my advice. Be happy. 
be happy now. That's what it's all about to me. What role has forgiveness played in your recovery? Absolute, complete, absolute role. My mother never had a chance. My father was just a very kind, gentle person. And I think he was just so overwhelmed, you know? And if I don't forgive my mom, I become my mom plus. And, and I pray that she's in heaven with my father resting in peace. And, and, and here's the thing. All of us have been damaged. All of us have been soiled. All of us have been put somewhere we don't want to be. But at the same time, you deal with it and you kind of have to kind of let go and move forward. And I learn a lot because I do a lot of work with people in program. And, and, and it sounds simple one day at a time, but it really is a huge burden. And yet you just break things down that you can put together and live your own life and at the same time, keep your side of the street clean. And I'm my, my grandson's going to be four here in a few months. And Steve, if Robin Williams was alive right now, he'd be so jealous of me. <laughs> I got the chance to meet him one time and I made him laugh. We actually did a Robin Williams off. I was recording one of the books in his studio in San Francisco. And I physically just bumped into the guy. And I was like, okay, do I say hello or whatever? Because I and I'm the type of guy who gets so nervous. I'll say the most stupidest things if I like you. I go, 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 I just so I bumped in and goes, hi, hi. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing fine. So we did a Robin Williams off. So you mentioned recording this book in studio. And, and before you recorded that one, you had to write one. And before that one, you wrote another one. I got nine now. We're, 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 we're at nine. <laughs> book nine just came out in March. Okay. What I do as a writer is I study film a great deal and I kind of write as a director. Because if you look at a child called it, there's not really too many words that are over three syllables because it's written by an eight-year-old boy. That's why it's very graphic and fast paced and so forth. And then as I open up the lens, like the second book, that was from like ages 12 to 18. So I had to open up that lens and make it more psychological. The book nine, Return to the River, is kind of a... a if Christopher Nolan, the director who did the Batman series and Inception and so forth, Interstellar, he always has like three or four threads in the movie and they all are interwoven. Yeah. And in, in Return to the River, to me, is my best writing as a writer. And there's like, I think, 13 separate threads. And it's really about family dynamics and trying to deal with something as overwhelming as the War of the Worlds pandemic that we all went through. And then having other things unexpectedly happen along the way. And what do you do about it? There was a movie, World War Z, and Brad Pitt plays the doctor. And he says, life is about movement. You got to keep moving. Schwarzenegger has a new uh, thing out in uh, Netflix, uh, which I think is just phenomenal. It ta- it's three episodes, talks about him as an athlete uh, and then being an actor. And then the third segment is called American, about him being the, the governor and his thoughts on things. And it shows him he's a little, he's slowing down, but he, his mantra is, you know, stay busy, keep moving, don't quit. So it's a psychological thing as well as it is a physical thing. And that's what happened when we did lockdown and COVID. We just stopped. We froze and we were, we're not getting the information we want and demand. And God forbid that if the internet went down, then it would have been Mad Max for God's sakes. And yet it kind of taught us, hmm, okay, we can only sit on our butts for like four or five days. Now what? Right. I watch. And I was fortunate because as a fire captain, I was just busier than ever. So I was kind of lucky. So before you wrote your ninth book, you wrote your first book. Yeah. 
what gave you the audacity to write about your extraordinarily personal and tragic childhood in the tone you did? Like most of us, Dave, who endured that would have buried it and moved on if we were healthy enough to do that. You said, here's my life. Read it. Read it. Well, and, and I think part of it was ignorance because I remember I soaked up compliments from my teachers like a sponge. And one, one teacher says, oh, you're good in math. And I had this lady who just recently passed away, my English teacher. She, she said, oh, you're going to be a writer. Because what I would do is I would bring home books and, and do the chores. And my mother would time her attention time, her abuse time on how much homework I brought home. Because her facade was, well, if he doesn't do his assignments, they're going to be calling and want to investigate. So I would read these books and it opened up my world to escape these adventure books. So my thing was, I wanted to give myself 10 years. And I said, no, no, no. I wanted to give myself 20 years to get my act together. And, and I was going to write a thank you letter to my teachers. Mm. Hence, a child called it. Because I didn't know if they knew what was going on or the role they played on how much I valued it. Because behind the scenes, they talked about me all the time. My nurse would try to feed me French bread or on Fridays, because I wouldn't be fed that weekend. Twinkies, because they knew my mother would have me run home one or two times a day to manually regurgitate to proven that I hadn't stolen any food. So behind the scenes, these guys were doing, it was like a rescue mission. And I just wanted to write a letter to them, or and it became that little book, A Child Called Ed. Mm -hmm. What a lot of people don't know was the book was printed before it was officially published. And there's a big difference. It's like making a film that no one ever sees because you don't have the distribution. So that book was actually given to my teachers on the exact day of the 20-year anniversary. I'm affable, but I am ruthless, and I love to surprise people. I've had the honor of meeting the King of Ghana, presidents, senators, actors, celebrities, musicians, great, amazing people. None of them are here in my office. You know who's in my office? Teachers. That's Miss Woodworth, Mr. Ziegler, Betty Howe, the librarian, and Miss Constan. You endured almost a decade of this abuse, and it's a dramatic, unimaginable story. How common is it? How common is this abuse taking place? I, I don't have my pulse on numbers that I used to. We're more aware of it now, which means it's more reportable now, and it's mandated now. So I, I think we've got him better by it. But then every once in a while, we hear these very over-the-top dramatic cases, and it's just deplorable. And my biggest fear is like, what do we do with these kids that, are, that have, might be so far gone? I really think our eyes are on it now more than before. And again, the mandate laws have changed. Because again, if my case would have been popped up per se when I was in kindergarten, because I remember I couldn't do my phonics or I was always in the corner, very afraid. And, and, and I really feel bad for my teachers and my students, my classmates. I smelled so bad. Sometimes the kids would regurgitate. They would keep, keep me in the back of the class by an open window to kind of ventilate and stealing their food. Or I was kind of a nice thief. Uh, I would only steal half a sandwich and I wouldn't touch her apples or oranges. But if you had Twinkies or Pop-Tarts, forget about it. <laughs> Done. So there's a little bit of shame. I mean, I went to Miss Woodward's funeral service and I met a couple of classmates and, and so forth. And I'm still very, very ashamed of that. And I know this sounds strange. I'm kind of glad I am ashamed. I'm kind of glad that I have that little bit of pain inside because it makes me again, want to be a better person 
and it, and it opens me up more to do more for people. I'm very proud to say that, you know, once a month I go to Costco and I get those eight packs of, of, of socks and I buy them by the dozen. And then I did physically hand them out to those who aren't doing too well or make sure they have food. And, you know, I do this one-on-one -on -one cause I used to back in my day, donate a great deal of time and money, my own personal funds. And I raised a lot of funds. And I don't know to this day if what I intended the funds to go to went there. So now I'm trying to do it more direct. And it makes me feel even like I'm really doing something. And I want to read something. This is something I live by. Yeah. The proper function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. And that's by a phenomenal writer of Oakland, California fame, Jack London. Yeah. Another mantra that I have, live a grand adventure. So to tell a great story. And that's by North Sonoma Coast, California fire captain, 4412, which is me. I believe in honor and I believe in service. I carried my father's badge. He was homeless. He died. It took him 46 months to die in the hospital. I can forgive my mom what she did against me and my family, but she refused to see my father when he was dying. All he had was his badge. He couldn't talk. He had cancer of the neck and throat, could not communicate with his eyes. I said, I'm 19. I'm not used to death. And it changed my life. And he gave me his badge. And I carried it on every Air Force mission, the birth of my son, Every in-service training I did, traveling around the world, millions and millions of miles. And I just, I, I, I really believe in being of service. And that's why, again, I, I restate myself. My program is to do three nice things a day. I want to make people laugh three times a day. And you got to have those moments and you got to capture those moments. Dave, many of our listeners aren't feeling like this is cool. This is cool right now. They're lonely or they're isolated, or they received a diagnosis for them or a loved one they wish would disappear. And many, many of our listeners, many of our viewers, many of our fellow citizens and human beings are just struggling right now. They're in a dark place, man. What, what encouragement as we get ready to wrap up our conversation would you give to them right now? Keep the faith and don't give up on yourself. If you're going through a hard time or went through a hard time, and this is where I get kind of serious, I'm going to lean on this one. I want you to know, I want them to know that they survived for a reason. Okay. If you were treated badly, something bad happened to you, you're going through something, it's just for the now. But you've got to change the direction. You've got to just get up, do something that makes you happy, that makes you fulfilled for the now, and then take another step and another step and another step. But if you're wallowing endlessly, if you're pointing your finger at someone else, remember you got three pointed at yourself. Look at the news. We live in a semi-chaotic world, but you have to make your own peace. Don't give up on yourself. You mentioned several times faith, God, and keep the faith as you wrapped up with that statement. What role has faith played in your journey forward as you healed and lived and served? I don't know if it's JC or the big guy. I, I don't know if they like me or I'm just a court gesture. I just don't know. But I do believe in a higher power for me. And I do believe that I survived for a reason. And again, as I say, those tumblers, those tumblers in life came together precise times, whether it was being rescued, 
I was basically being kicked out of foster care in a matter of a week or so, and I was allowed to finally join the Air Force, or I was out processing, and I finally got this job as a mid-air refueler, or mm. even a child called it, that first book, it was published, and there was a second book that was coming out a year later, and I thought, okay, let's put the book, two books together and give them a discount, and it was actually, they said, no, Mr. Pels, we're not going to republish a child called it, and then by miracle, we got a call to do a, a national show, and then we were off to the races. And it's amazing when you stop and just be still. There's listening, and then there's receiving. And I want the audience to know the difference. I love you. I love you. I love you too. Good luck. But when you receive, and you just put down the white noise, the drama, the BS, then you can receive, and then you can move forward. And I've always had a faith. And, and, and the older I get, I feel even more faithful. I try to be optimistic. I try to be kind. I try to be patient. Believe me, I'm fallible in everything I do. If I succeeded in one thing, I've screwed it up a hundred times. But I know in my heart what is true. My friend, what is true is that you have lived a heroic life and a life of service. And it's been an honor to meet this child called it and this incredible man named Dave. Dave, we wrap up every episode with seven questions that tether all of our guests together. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. I Let's think go. These. Question number one, you are the author of nine books, but what's the most inspirational or impactful book you've ever read? My Men, John Steinbeck, uh, Lenny and George, they just want to find the place that's theirs that no one can trouble them. And how they, they, they get into this situation where there's all these other misfits who join. And one of these days, we're going to tend the rabbits and no one will bother us again. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I don't know how to answer that because I think the older I get, I'm becoming more of a little kid, particularly now that I'm a grandparent. I'm the fantasy of living a good life, I guess. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, one physical thing, what would you come racing back outside with? I would I'm, try to find a photo of my son somewhere. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Oh, gosh, so many people. Gandhi, Harry Truman. Justice Ginberg, I don't know. I think someone with the wisdom and the courage and, and the humbleness of, of, of Gandhi. I love, by the way, you not only mentioned Gandhi several times, but my, my fellow Missouri boy, Truman. I also love Truman. What's the best advice Gandhi, Truman, or anyone else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? Oh, my goodness. Don't give up. I'm proud of you. I wrote this in the latest book. I'm interviewing my teacher and he told me why they finally rescued me because I had somehow just blocked it out. And I said, sir, I'm sorry for the pain I caused you and the teachers. And I said, one time you said you're doing a good job. Keep up the good work. And Mr. Ziegler, my teacher says, son, I don't remember that. I said, sir, I do. It's sometimes those small little things that can just get you going. Hmm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? You're going to kick ass. Dave, it has been said, my friend, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? I'm a lucky man. <laughs> a child called it, 
and an incredible man named Dave. You are indeed a lucky man, but part of that luck you've made. And we're grateful you shared it with us today. So my friends, that is Dave Pelter. I'm John O'Leary. Today is your day, friends. Choose to live inspired. my friends, I warned you on the front side of this episode that you were going to be in for a roller coaster ride, one filled with unbelievable despair and tragedy, and yet redemption, hope, and joy, and life. In every single episode, I'm always looking for at least one takeaway, sometimes two, sometimes two, but always at least one specific takeaway, one quotable that just, oh man, rocks me to my core. And during this episode, it was a conversation as we were talking about his mom and how he feels about her now, looking back on what she did to him. And this is the quote from Dave. If I don't forgive my mom, he said, I become my mom. All of us have been damaged, but you have to deal with it one day at a time. I'd like to say this to you one more time, my friends. This is worthy of being deeply moved and convicted by. I hear it. If I don't forgive my mom, that experience, that scar, that mistake, those words she said, whatever it is, my friends, that you are feeling the weight of the world on you today because of, if I don't forgive that thing, I become that thing. If you enjoyed learning on hope and resilience and forgiveness in the way that Dave has modeled it through his life, I'm going to encourage you to check out another episode that we recorded that I loved. It's way back in episode 348 with my buddy, Steve Pemberton. Steve's an amazing guy, never acknowledged by his father and then eventually abandoned at an early age by his mom. Steve spent his childhood being shuffled through the foster care system where he was abused, neglected, forgotten. Sort of sound familiar to the story you just heard, but that's not where the story ends up. It was small, kind examples of love and kindness and generosity from neighbors, from teachers, from coaches, from people who are just looking over the fence saying, there's something going on here and I can make a difference for this one little boy that changed his life. What he's doing in his life today is equally remarkable. Do you want to learn about Steve Pemberton, his journey, and what it ultimately means for you along your journey? Check it out. It's a great one. Episode 348. So my friends, For this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day. Thanks for being part of our Live Inspired podcast movement and thanks for choosing to live inspired. Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.